This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hey guys, Sophie here. Before you get into the episode, I just wanted to warn you that we hit some technical difficulties in recording this episode. I didn't realize until we were done recording that my audio got picked up on my mic as well as Hannah's. I was able to salvage the episode, but if you listen, you'll notice that there are some inconsistencies with the audio quality and volume on my track. I think that the episode is definitely worth listening to anyway. We had a lot of fun talking about this movie, uh, and so I hope you'll listen. But if the audio troubles are too much for you, we'll understand, and we'll see you next month. it and you know what like yeah I feel like I can always use an extra reminder to be productive and I'm not gonna lie I am literally painting shirts while we're doing this so that's what I'm saying like for people that don't already follow better shirts Chicago on Instagram you should because it's just all these really mesmerizing uh videos of Hannah you know time-lapse videos of Hannah painting things and really cool pictures of stuff Hannah's working on and I just feel like it makes me feel lazy every time I see it. Because I I know, as someone who knows you, that that's not, like, a full-time job you have. That's a thing you do on top of your full-time job and being in school full-time. Um, so productive seemed like a very good word for you. I love it. And I like um, – I definitely think I'm the type of person who's a lot of times doing, like, two things at once. So a lot of times uh-huh. I'll be, like, drawing or cutting out designs for shirts, like, while I'm in class. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and actually it's funny, like, uh, my one friend, I was thinking like, depending on when this comes out, but like, who am I kidding? This is never going to happen. But my one friend was, uh, texting me the other day saying I should get a TikTok because she was like, your videos of you painting would be really good on TikTok. And I was like, you're probably right. And I appreciate you thinking of ways I can grow my business, but I already have a hard enough time even like remembering to post anything on Instagram And as like listeners of this podcast will know, I didn't have an Instagram for a very long time. Um, And I've said many times that if I ever became successful with shirt making, the first thing I would do would be to hire somebody else to handle (laughs) the social media for me. So it's funny because, yeah, she was like, you should get a TikTok. You'd reach so many more people that way. And I'm like, you're probably right. And yet the chances of that happening are so slim. <laughs> now, Hannah, you do know that if you got a TikTok and you posted a video on TikTok, you could just share that video on Instagram. You wouldn't have to be doing more work than you're doing now. I mean, even that sentence was like too complicated for me. <laughs> um, that's actually, it's funny that you say that because this was not something I was going to talk about up top, but I just feel like it's a story that you will get a kick out of and, uh, will make you feel like, oh, that's where I get it from. Um, 
So uh, people may or may not be aware of the service called StoryWorth. A couple years ago, I got it for my parents for Christmas. And it's a, a service that you sign up yourself or a loved one. And once a week, StoryWorth will send a, a biographical question to them. Like, what was your mom like when you were growing up? Or what's the first job you ever had? And if you're the person who picked the subscription, you get to sort of uh, cater and select the questions that you want asked. But your loved one answers those questions. And at the end of a year, they will have answered 52 questions. And you get to compile a book that's basically the story of their life. It's very cool. So for our mom's 60th birthday, I told her that what I wanted to do was get a StoryWorth subscription and put it together so that she could have a book with both of her parents in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, our grandparents on my mom's side are no longer married, but I, you know, mom sort of touched base with both of them about whether it would be easier for me to call them and ask the question and sort of record their answer and then type it up. Uh, And they both said that what they wanted to do was have the questions sent to them via email so they could answer that way. So that's what I've been doing. And I got a voicemail from our grandfather uh, over the weekend that, um, and then I had a follow-up phone call with him yesterday that made it clear that um, I don't think he knows how to respond to an email. (laughs) Like he was basically like, I have my answers all typed up, but I don't know how to get them to you. And so, so I said, okay, um, well, yeah, I, you know, typically what happens with StoryWorth is they click a link and that takes them to a website where they can create an account and put their answers in. I wanted to make it easy for them. So I'm just copying and pasting the question to them in an email so that they can just respond with an email. And then I can copy that email onto the website to make it simplified. Mm-hmm. And I explained that to grandpa thinking that was his confusion. And during the conversation, it became clear that I don't think he knows it sounds like he might used to have used email more often but doesn't really use it that much anymore so I don't think he knows how to respond to emails by hitting reply and so I said oh well if you've already typed your answers out you can just print those answers and mail them to me (laughs) um because at work I have a I have a the capability to use a scanner that can OCR and then I can like that'll recognize the text and I can copy paste it yeah but no the solution we landed on is that grandpa's gonna hand write all of his answers to me and then mail them to me and then I will type them up wow it was just absolutely lovely so so. you've gone and you're going above and beyond let me tell you he literally was like I know they don't teach penmanship in school anymore do you know how to read cursive and I was like yes grandpa when I was in school we still learned cursive <laughs> they don't teach penmanship in school anymore yeah because they don't teach cursive and, and at least in Missouri um where we have a friend who used to be a, te- a friend whose mom used to be a teacher in Springfield Missouri and the year before she retired they stopped even teaching spelling because they were like at this point everyone's writing everything on their phone or their computer both of them have auto like spell check. So there's no need to teach people how to spell. Wow. Yeah. That's the world we're living in you guys. So we're doing great. Uh-huh. Wow. The hours of my life I spent on cursive, but I'll never get back. But Hannah, think about it this way. You can read cursive now. Like that's actually a very helpful tool to have. Yeah, when like, I was looking for jobs at one point in my life, I realized I wasn't qualified to do like anything with an English degree because so many things want you to have like a social media presence or at least a base understanding of how social media works. 
Yeah. Um, so I love that I'm not qualified to do like barely anything because I can't understand how social media and computers work. But if I ever get called upon to read cursive, <laughs> by golly, you can read cursive. I'll be like, I told Finally. grandma, I was like, not only did we learn it in school, but a huge part of my job now is requesting old records from like the seventies and eighties and nineties. And a lot of them are handwritten. So it's incredibly useful to know how to read cursive or I would be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, the thing I was actually going to tell you about up top this week, Hannah, was that, um, that wasn't it. No, that was such well, a fun I, surprise for me. <laughs> I know. Well, that like just came up organically because you were talking about how bad you are at technology, mm-hmm. um, which honestly I should have banked on, but I didn't. So what I was actually going to tell you is that as we record and people listening to this may not know, Hannah and I record at lots of different times. It just sort of depends on when we can line up our schedules. But currently it is two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon um, and I have a job. But as we are recording right now, I am drinking a glass of Post Malone's Rosé that I bought over the weekend and have been saving so that I could drink it with you live on the podcast. Um, I called Hannah immediately before I bought this Rosé to tell her that our local liquor store had tweeted that they finally had Post Malone's Rosé. I didn't even know that was a thing, and I went directly to the liquor store to buy a bottle. So I am drinking Maison 9 as we speak, Hannah. It's called Maison 9? Uh-huh. Why is it called that? I don't know. <laughs> love it's, that. Uh, but it's French. I love that. <laughs> uh, when I opened it, I'll look up why it's called that. While it's I French. Opened, was opening... <laughs> While I was opening the bottle, which uh, is a beautiful glass bottle with a sword on the front and the sword has a rose at the top and the sword is wrapped in barbed wire. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, yep. So while we were uh, opening the bottle, I made Jeremy uh, watch the video for circles with me because I was like, this is definitely where this whole aesthetic comes from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, wow. Listen, yeah. I'm trying I... to tell you about the wine, but uh, their website is just not telling me very much. They have exclusive merch. That's oh what God. I really like with my wine, you know, like as long, I want to know that my wine has a lot of exclusive merch associated with it. Hannah, what? they have a t-shirt. Oh my God. If you don't get this for me for Christmas, I'm never talking to you again. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I might buy this for myself. They have a t-shirt that's a like faded white crew neck t-shirt and in the center it has a black and white photograph of post malone in all his glory laying in a field of wheat Wheat. and holding a giant ass sword (laughs) over his shoulder and like looking into the middle distance and it says maison number nine and then i think it has the text that's printed on the wine bottle below the name of the wine they also have a long sleeve t-shirt that has the sword and rose going down the sleeve that's cool They've got a great crew neck sweatshirt that has a picture of Post Malone on it that looks like a cross between a mugshot and the, the pictures of, like, Civil War people that they took of their dead bodies to be like, oh, they're still alive. Look at this. Now we have this photo of them forever. So that's also an option. Oh, God. <laughs> um, they also have a dad hat and a hoodie. So um, What's a dad hat? 
I think that's just what they call baseball caps now. Oh. Um, also, here you go. I haven't been able to find any information about why it's called this. But I can tell you that on the merch page, they have a quote by Post Malone that says, Rosé is for when you want to get a little fancy. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I will also say that speaking of circles, um, I definitely got to a point in my last relationship where I was in, I was like driving downtown and circles came on the radio and I was like identifying way too much with it. And I feel like that was a point in my life where I was like, this is going to be tough to come back from. <laughs> Dude, I, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just realized that the shirt that I told you you have to buy me also has a giant number nine and a sword cross on the back. Okay. <laughs> I have to own this shirt. It's called Maison Number Nine. Maison Number Nine. So that means house. Correct. Mm -hmm. House Number Nine. Yep. Not sure why. I'm fine with it. It tastes. It tastes pretty decent. I'm pretty sure. You know that. Um, make that rose brand I like, where the bottle is glass. It has a glass stopper, and the bottom looks like a rose. Yeah, that's a Miraval, right? Sure. I is think it Maribel or Whispering Angel? I have no idea, but I think this is the same brand because it also has the glass stopper and the bottle is the same shape. Interesting. And honestly, him partnering with that rosé feels very on brand to me. Yeah, I believe it's Maribel, which is um, Oprah's brand. Shut up. Yeah. Post Malone and Oprah are doing wine together? They might just have the same uh, distributor. Anna, I need to believe that there's a universe where Post Malone and Oprah are just, like, hanging out, drinking rosé, laying in fields of wheat, holding swords. I mean, that's what we used lives. to think about. Um, we used to not think that Martha Stewart and Snoop would be BFFs, but they are, so. I know. This is the next iteration. That's such a good point. Okay, so I've really taken us down a rabbit hole. Listeners, um... Please tweet at us to remind Hannah that I want her to buy me this shirt. And uh, Hannah, what have you been up to? Well, also, good luck with that, because you know how I don't like people telling me what to do. I know, but you like Post Malone. So <laughs> like... All right, so this is like a very special episode of 20 Days Later. I don't think people are going to fully grasp the, the, the gravity of this when they just see the episode title. Uh, Hannah and I today are tackling a movie that was very formative for us, I think, for both of us as as kids. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Hannah, why don't you tell people what we're watching and then maybe give them, like, a little bit of a plot synopsis in case they haven't seen it. Yeah, so um, part of what makes us great is that we were, like, we were both, like, what's a, a, a movie we've both seen before that we both love? Um, that like means a lot to us that we could watch kind of just for like some easy watching, like some, some like solid fun. Um, and I chose a movie that we were like, I would damn near say obsessed with briefly. Um, absolutely true in our youth. And, uh, like, I feel like dad saw it first and then was like, this movie is so good. We have to watch it right now. Um, and I don't know exactly how old I was when this came out, but I'm not sure if it was 100% age appropriate. <laughs> I feel like chances I mean, you are... you older than the youngest character in the movie, so does that count? Oh, wait. Rory Culkin and I have the same birthday and we're the same age. 
Uh-oh, there's a big hint, Hannah, a big hint. So I was, this, I'm the age of Rory Culkin in this movie, watching this movie. <laughs> um, yeah, so we chose Signs, um, arguably M. Night Shyamalan's last good movie for quite a while. Um, <laughs> although I know, like, that's, I think it's also a polarizing movie for some people for that same reason like some people can't decide if they like it or not um, yeah i think some people really hate this movie which i'm honestly not about which makes me so upset because yeah we love this movie and i rem- literally remember like i i feel like dad got it maybe from netflix like early early days of netflix got yeah, I think it you're right through the mail and like we stayed up late to watch it like, I just have such good memories of watching this movie um, and, like, watching it with dad and it being, like, and then being, like, obsessed with it and then immediately going to our mom's house and being, like, mom, now you have to watch this, too, and watching it with our brothers at our mom's house instead. So it was, like, every uh, every family member got exposed <laughs> Hannah, you're totally right that this movie like factors very much into the sort of like family lore, both with our mom and our dad. So uh, not only did our dad like this movie so much after watching it one time that he was like, I got to show this to my kids. Um, he also bought this on DVD, which <laughs> may not sound like that big a deal for some people, but our dad to this day owns like maybe five DVDs, mm-hmm. maybe. Um he, the man never buys DVDs. I respect him. He's very frugal. And he's like, if I want to watch it, I can get it from the library. Um, or he went through but, a period of time where he would also get things from the library and then, like, burn them illegally onto DVDs for his personal collection. Yeah, but I feel like he mostly just did that so that he could, like, watch them and then he would record back over them. Yeah, like, he uh, definitely... Yeah, was very frugal in his movie watching. He would do it so he could get more movies at once from the library or from Netflix. That's what I was going to say. Like, fun fact, great piece of family uh, lore and family myth, which is true about our family, is that when Netflix first started and you could only get DVDs, they didn't have a streaming service. That didn't used to be a thing. But you could get three DVDs at a time. And every time you sent one back, they'd send you a new one. So what dad would do is when the Netflix DVD came, he would play the movie when he was like sleeping or at work and record it onto VHS <laughs> so that that way he would always record back over it. He wasn't like saving them forever, but that way he could get a much faster turnaround from Netflix. And it actually got to the point that Netflix like moved their distribution center for the mid Atlantic to try to slow down dad getting <laughs> so many DVDs. Um, it's great. So, and then like, because he was gaming the system. And also, um, our dad was very skilled at uh, recording things on VHS and uh, in the VCR. Because he also, when our mom, when they got married and our mom was making her wedding dress with our grandmother and sister, our dad had recorded her favorite miniseries entirely on VHS without commercials. Yeah, like, he sat there while it was on TV and would stop the recording for commercials and then turn it back on. Like, find you somebody that's going <laughs> to That's going to do all of that. And Dad was, like, ahead of the game on binge-watching. Yeah, 100%. So, and then, like Hannah said, 
we loved it so much after watching it with our dad that we were going to make our mom watch it. Now, people might remember, our mom doesn't do horror movies very well. Um, she doesn't like things that are tense or suspenseful or stressful in any way. She tends to get up and leave the room when that happens. Um, and again, another very famous piece of uh, family, family lore, family story about this movie is that we watched it while our stepdad was deployed in Kuwait. So it was you and Ryan and I and our two other brothers and mom watching this movie. And there was a sequence in this movie where mom tried to get up to go to the bathroom, which just meant like she just kept getting up like periodically throughout the whole movie. Like whenever it got too tense, she would just get up and be like, I'm going to make some tea. Does anybody want anything? (laughs) Yeah. So she tried to get up and she was sitting on the floor and our stepbrother just like put his hands on her shoulders and was like, you got to stay here. Yeah. He's like, you're going to watch this. (laughs) Yeah. It was the best. Our brother Tim was like, no, we're all going to watch this together. Um, So Hannah, for people out there who maybe haven't seen Signs, can you just give like a quick synopsis of what this movie is about? Um, Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard because it's like, to me, this movie feels like it's about so much. (laughs) <laughs> so many different things um but well, just give me the most literal plot yes, things so i'm but sure we'll break down some of the other stuff literally you know. it is about like and kind of like what would happen if there was like an alien invasion kind of like a like a slow alien invasion in like rural pennsylvania mm-hmm. like if if basically like how would that look from the perspective of, like, a farming family in rural Pennsylvania. That's a beautiful, beautiful synopsis. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I've always been partial to M. Night Shyamalan, even though his projects can be pretty hit or miss, is that he loves to set a movie in, like, Bucks County, PA, or Philadelphia. Like, it's all, it's all feels very familiar. Yeah. It's all right around where we grew up. I mean, such that... Uh, Hannah and I and our three brothers went with my mom once as kids on a summer Saturday and waited in line for several hours to try to get cast as extras in the village. (laughs) Yes. Um, But we left before uh, auditioning, so that's why we're not in it. It's not because they passed over us. They just didn't get to meet us. Because it took so long that we gave up. And it was truly, if I remember correctly, my mom said that the casting call, my mom, mom said the casting call was for <laughs> She's like, my mom too. <laughs> kids, but especially kids who knew how to do like more pioneer kind of stuff. So she was like, Sophie and Hannah, you know how to sew. And like, she was like trying to <laughs> get us ready to, for the audition. But that's much of not. We thought the- we were shoe-ins because we were, we came from a long line of Civil War reenactors at that time. And we were like, I we're going to fit right in. Yeah. We were like, we got snoods, we're ready to go. We're perfect for this. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know about you, Hannah, but I had not seen this movie probably since we watched it with mom, which had to be, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and we recently talked to our brother about this movie and he was saying how he keeps wanting to rewatch it, but he's too scared. <laughs> and I have to admit, like I was kind of in the same boat. This movie scared the shit out of me when it first came out. Um, again, I wasn't really watching horror stuff at the time. So this was, we were children. (laughs) Yeah, it was very tense and very scary. And so, um, I too was a little bit apprehensive to rewatch it. And I remember rewatching it for this podcast. Like there were still, there were sequences that I remembered that still scared me, even though 
they maybe wouldn't be as scary now. And there was some jump scares, especially that I had forgotten that really just like knocked me off my seat. I got so like, I think this movie ages pretty well for the most part, which I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering like, what was the rewatch like for you? Um, I thought it was really funny when you and Ryan said that to that you guys were both kind of scared about rewatching it um, because I had already rewatched it and it did not scare me anymore. <laughs> but I also I have, to be, I have to remind you that when I said that I had already rewatched it for this podcast twice. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I agree, though, in that, like, I have the same kind of thing where it did scare me a lot as a kid. So I was kind of nervous going into it, like with that in mind, even though it didn't still have that. To me, it was like the nostalgia kind of like overtook any actual like fear because I was just like, this is just so fun to like remember all of it. And I had also seen it more recently than you. Oh, okay. That Um, makes a big difference, I think. Yeah, I remember we watched it once for, um, for those of you who don't know. Um, Sophie and I both at different times in our high school career were involved in the horror movie club at school, Horror Fest. Um, I kind of like took over for Sophie after she graduated. Yeah, I was going to say we both ran horror club, like yeah. co- co-ran horror club while we were in high school. Yeah. Um, and so we watched it once for that because we needed a movie really late notice and dad had it on DVD. Um... And I watched it again, too, a few years ago. I can't remember why or with who, but somebody who hadn't seen it. Um, but, yeah, so I had seen it a few more times than than you had, like, intermittently throughout the years. Uh, but I definitely had that same feeling going into it where it's kind of like we talked – I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, too, just that, like, there's an episode of Buffy that scared me so much when I was little that I – Was it Hush? No, although that one did really scare me, but um, I Only Have Eyes for You is one that scared me so bad as a kid that I've struggled to go back and watch it. And then the one with, like, the the demon from outer space that, like, is on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. That one scared me so bad that I've literally not watched that again since I was a child. Um, Like, when I do my periodic rewatches of Buffy I like skip over that part um but yeah so So I your signs is what you're saying yes that episode is definitely my signs (laughs) um yeah so I have so many notes for this movie but I also don't want to keep everyone here forever so let's just start at the top I mean one thing that I was struck by immediately on my rewatch is that the score for this movie is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like the main theme that they play is really good and, and tense, but they also have this really cool overture at the top during the opening credits. Like there's a lot of this movie that is paying homage to a, a different era of Hollywood. And I think it does that stuff really effectively. And I think that stuff ages really well. Yeah. And especially um, Alfred Hitchcock, you can tell there's a lot of Hitchcock influence in that opening. For sure. For sure. And I'll say that actually um, M night Shyamalan cited a lot of movies as influencing this film, but specifically night of living dead, the original invasion of the body snatchers. And to your point, the birds 
And he apparently made the cast members of this movie watch The Birds several times in preparation for this movie, mm. which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll obviously get into it, but when you were talking about how it's hard to synopsize the plot of this movie because there's so many things going on, one of the other plot lines, of course, is that Mel Gibson is, used to be a priest, but has sort of lost his faith in God. Um, and... This stinks because I think if it were any director other than M. Night Shyamalan and if M. Night Shyamalan's career had not gone the places it went after this movie, people wouldn't hate this so much. But I feel like when they show the like empty space on the wall where the cross used to be, Mm -hmm. I think that's really effective. But I think because M. Night Shyamalan, especially after this movie, got got a lot of shit for being like very over the top or on the nose with things and trying too hard to like shoehorn things in i feel like stuff like that in this movie gets a bad rep where when it's actually pretty effective like i think i had since seeing this i had heard so many people be butthurt about the the faith storyline being like heavy-handed yeah i actually think it's handled very effectively in this movie i agree with that that was actually one of my one of the things i liked the most about it growing up um i thought that that storyline was like really cool the way it was handled and like and also and that's the thing too right is like when we saw this movie that was we saw like right after it came out on dvd and at that point m night Shyamalan still had a very still had a reputation for like surprise twist endings and yeah like really well thought out stories and i think a lot of people who who see signs like after he fell off kind of yeah they bring all of that judgment into the into totally. their viewing and they view it like with through a different lens and, and that they're really looking for things out. that people complain about him doing in other movies yeah like they're exactly. looking for stuff that they that they that they see as illustrative of things he does later that they don't like yeah exactly i it, yeah it, that that's exactly right and so i think like it's unfortunate that you can't like if you didn't see this movie before all of that you can't it's hard to like see it without that like clouded perspective totally yeah um while we're on that topic i think we can't talk about this movie without addressing the elephant in the room which is that this movie stars mel gibson which, if I'm being honest, for me, is the one and only thing about this movie that doesn't age well, mm-hmm. um, is having Mel Gibson in the lead in the lead role. So, obviously, this came out at a time where Mel Gibson was very popular. He was doing a ton of stuff. He was still very much, like, riding the high of his career throughout the 70s and 80s. It was very shortly after this movie came out um, that we started... I think more widely hearing about really problematic, like homophobic, misogynist, xenophobic, racist, anti-Semitic behavior coming from him. And some of, so I was sort of like doing some reading and I know this part of the episode is going to be hard for our mom to listen to <laughs> because mom used to love Mel Gibson. As and did I know so it many has, ladies at that what? time. As did so many ladies at that time. Exactly. exactly. As did we as young women. Oh, absolutely. And I know that it's been hard for mom to sort of like reckon with this behavior. But because so much of his bad behavior happened at a time where I was too young to be paying attention to it, 
I sort of was like, I know that Mel Gibson is bad, but I don't really understand why. That's sort of where I was at going to watch this movie. Um, so I thought I would just read an article. And I feel like sometimes you hear about an actor or an actress where something that they did comes out and it's horrendous, but it's just one thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Mel Gibson, dude, it's been like his entire career. So just like a quick uh, fly through of some of the fucked up shit that Mel Gibson has done on the record. In 1991, he mocked gay people and told them to fuck off. In 1994, he said that he doesn't believe men and women are equal. Obviously the most famous in 2006, he was arrested and blamed Jews for quote, all the wars in the world. Mm. Um, And there's also a very famous recording in 2010 where he's berating his, was she his wife at the time? Yeah, his wife. His wife. And he, said a lot of horrible things about her and used the n-word and said that people who get raped deserve it and all kinds of terrible stuff but on top of that he also is a holocaust denier and once called winona Ryder an oven dodger so yeah so it was it was hard to watch this movie that we love so much knowing those things about him because it's like um it really makes it hard to empathize with his character, which you you really want to for the movie to be effective. Yeah, you know. So I would well, say, like, you think about when we saw it growing up. Like, we still really loved Mel Gibson at that time, and it absolutely. was like, and it was like our dad brought this movie to our attention, being like, "I love this movie. You have to watch it." So there was also like some kind of like you know like transference of like him being a dad in this movie and him being like a dad figure. Uh Um, Yeah. And then now it's like to know that he's just like awful. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's a bummer when you go back to it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think it was just, like I said, I think we couldn't discuss this movie and not address that that stuff's out there, especially because we both like this movie so much. It, you know, I wanted to make sure we sort of like give some airtime to the fact that this movie yeah, like you don't want to. Primarily not a Mel, Mel Gibson vehicle, and yeah. he is an incredibly <laughs> fucked up person, um, who I think, rightly so, has mostly fallen out of uh, any kind of mainstream favor. So, anyway, um, let's get back to the movie. So, uh, let's talk about like, tell me some of the scenes that really stick out for you. Like, what's some of the stuff? like either visually or thematically that you really liked watching this as an adult? Um, well, it's hard to not just like jump to the end a little bit for me with that, just because a lot of, I mean, one thing I think this movie does really well is the way that it, it builds like a slow tension throughout really well. Uh Um, Uh but I definitely am more partial to kind of like during the climax and toward the end when things like really ramp up. Yeah. Um, and everything starts to make sense, but I do, um, I personally love the introduction of the family because I think you get like a good understanding of everybody's characters without them feeling like too hollow, you know, it felt like a real family kind of, Uh um, and I like the way that the, I think the writing is done well to to kind of slowly reveal 
um, in a way that doesn't like beat you over the, over the head with it. Like what is sort of like the recent tragedy that the family is dealing with. Um, although I do think it's funny, like sometimes when I watch movies and TV shows where a parent character or someone in the family has died in my head, like, or maybe it's like more recently when I watch things, but I feel like a lot of stuff when you watch it now, it's like this person died like three or four years ago and the person is like just getting back out there or something. Uh In this movie, it had only been like a year. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, that is not that long. Like, I think it's okay if nobody is okay yet. (laughs) Right. Like, I actually think this movie has, is, does a really good job to your point of portraying what grief looks like and how different people are handling it differently. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think the tone of this movie is really interesting to your point that, you know, I mean, before this movie, right, he does The Sixth Sense in 1999, which is a huge success and is a pretty straightforward, um, like, thriller, horror, suspense film. And then he does Unbreakable, which is, like, a, a... It is honestly, like, what we see as comic book superhero movies now. It's just that those weren't as popular at the time, but that's really the form it takes. It's, like, a dark superhero movie. Yeah. And then you get Signs... Which, in a lot of ways, especially for the first act, it feels like an offbeat character comedy. Like, it's just this, like, family living in rural Bucks County. We know that something a little bit creepy is happening, but so much of the dialogue is just, like, really silly and weird. Yeah. Um, I right. mean, it's kind of like a, a, like a northern exposure type of thing, where it's, like, a lot of, uh, everybody has, like, idiosyncrasies. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah, so... You know, you were talking about the characters being really well drawn, and and to, what like I was saying about the sort of being a weird, feeling a little bit like an offbeat comedy, or like you said, just giving the characters different idiosyncrasies. Uh, I think one of the best examples of that, I mean, and there are several, but a great example of that is Joaquin Phoenix's character, who you know he was a jock. He was really good at baseball. He got drafted into the minor leagues, and I think probably believed that he was going to play baseball professionally and never made it out of the minors. Right. And so he carries a lot of shame and probably resentment around that. And so that's a piece of his personality, but I love that they go the extra mile to be like, that's not the only thing you need to know about him. You know, we also want you to know that he's pretty, pretty misogynist. (laughs) Um, and, and just kind of terrible to be honest. Like, uh, it's, it just seems like his emotional growth got completely stunted. He just seems like a teenager most of the time. And, you know, he's supposed to be a young adult. He's not, this movie is old enough that Joaquin Phoenix is not like a fully grown adult when this movie comes out. Yeah. But, but, you know, the stuff he says about nerds and talking about a later scene where they, they try to confront the thing outside their house and they, cause they think it's a person still at this point. And he's telling the sheriff, you know, I don't know any girls that can run like that. Yeah. You know, like, it's such a great choice. And I appreciate that they what, that they go the extra mile of making him not be an entirely one-note character. They sort of flesh out, like, if this is his backstory, what would he be like? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, um, and I think it's kind of funny, like... Um, that that is also sort of like that part of him is also like challenged a lot 
yep. throughout the movie and in this with the circumstances especially um him kind of having this idea of himself um and also like realizing the situation is like something that he really is like completely out of his depth on yeah um, and I also having an idea of his brother that is ultimately sort of challenged a little bit in a way that makes him yeah uncomfortable right like it's we learn that it's really hard for him uh graham's struggle with his faith has been really hard on his kids but it's also been really hard on his brother who's used to having an older brother who can sort of say like everything happens for a reason and it's going to be okay and and graham's not doing that anymore yeah um and i also uh remember reading in the imdb trivia that um it was kind of funny because like he's written Joaquin Phoenix's character is written as Mel Gibson's younger brother, and they're, like, 23 years apart in age or something. Yeah, it's pretty, it's a pretty startle. Like, you can tell on screen that it's a pretty significant yeah. Um, But, you know, they, they go so far with the characters as to give us several little character cameos in town, and this is really where I took the note about it feeling kind of like a weird comedy, is they go into town to pick up some stuff and get pizza, and we meet several other people that live in town, and we get some great cameos, including Merritt Weaver playing the young woman who works at the pharmacy, mm-hmm. who basically says to Mel Gibson, you know, my friends keep saying the world's going to end, and if that's true, I need to confess. And he's like, well, I'm not yeah. a priest anymore. But he lets her confess anyway, and then go meets up with his kids and says, I don't want any of you spending time with whatever that character's name is. Yeah. Um, and we also get a Michael Showalter cameo. It's so fun because when I saw this movie the first time, I would have not known who either of those people were. Yeah. Uh, so it's cool to watch it as an adult and get to see, like, Michael Showalter as a burnout just, like, sitting in the military draft office for some reason. He's filling out paperwork. Yep. He's getting yep. drafted. He's there to harass Meryl, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Yeah, he's there to harass Joaquin Phoenix and also give us, like, some backstory. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So I want to talk about some of the scares in this movie because I think there are some good ones. And then we can sort of talk about, get into some of the stuff that happens at the ending. Um, There is a scene early on in the movie that I had not remembered where Bo, the little girl that is played by Abigail Breslin, comes and wakes up Mel Gibson and says, there's a monster outside my window. Can I have a glass of water? Yeah. Um, and people who know anything about this movie will remember, whether you've seen it or not, if you know very much about this movie, you probably know that the little girl has like a little tick where she leaves glasses, half-drunk glasses of water everywhere. Actually, she has a couple sips. She's worried that they're contaminated she or they have amoebas in them or they got stale. Yeah, she has all kinds of reasons. And so she just leaves them everywhere. Um which I imagine may be grief-related somehow. Um, so she wants another glass of water, and when Mel Gibson is hugging her into bed, there's a fucking alien on the roof, Hannah. And I yeah. didn't remember, and <laughs> I jumped so hard the first time I watched it. When you were talking about, like, jump scares that you forgot, I was literally in my head, I was like, oh, I wonder if she's thinking about when the alien is, like, on the <laughs> on the yep. barn roof. <laughs> No memory of that whatsoever. And I, the first time I rewatched this, I was like, I'm going to be a big kid and watch it in the dark. And I swear to God, (laughs) that scene happened. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) You like went systematically turn all the lights on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was telling Ryan, 
Ryan, our brother, the other day that when I was watching both times, like watch signs, and whenever I watch something scary when I'm home by myself, which will be happening less often now because Jeremy's done with his semester of grad school, but um, we have our couch is not against a wall. And if you know me at all, you know, that's very challenging for me when there's a scary thing on, I like to be against a wall uh, and I can't. And the back of our couch is sort of like right at the end of a hallway and there's nothing behind it. So when I watch scary stuff now, I go into the hallway and close all the doors (laughs) and I leave the hallway light on, even if I'm turning other lights off. So yeah, so that scared the bejesus out of me. And then obviously there's the scare that was very formative to me that of course I remembered, which is found footage uh, home video from a child's birthday party <laughs> when an alien just kind of like saunters across the street. <laughs> yeah, like Bigfoot style. Yeah, and my note from that is that birthday video. And then I wrote, scarred me as a child. And then I wrote, still gave me full body shivers, even with bad CGI. Even like now though, like when yes. after they made fun of it in Scary Movie? <laughs> Here's the thing. I haven't, I, I know I've seen most of the scary movie movies, but I don't really remember any of them. Mm -hmm. So especially when they're making fun of something that terrified me at such a formative age, like I don't think it's going to go away. Like we talked about this when I did the grudge episode, I can watch the grudge now and acknowledge that if I watched it today and I had never seen it, it probably would still creep me out a little bit, but it would not scare me as much as it used to. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Like the fear from the first time I saw it is baked into my DNA such that it still scares the crap out of me. And it was the same with this. Like I could acknowledge that, you know, it, it doesn't look as scary and the CGI doesn't hold up as well, but I still like got goosebumps watching it because the scare, I remember the scare so specifically. Yeah. From being a kid. I don't even think it's CGI. I think the person is, it's a person in like a green screen suit. Oh, no, I think you're right. That they, but, like, that the effects, effect, yeah, the stuff they, they're projecting on the suit, that's what looks yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, wonky yeah. in different shots. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, no, yeah, I remember that, too, and watching it with our dad, I remember, and we probably did the same thing when we watched it with our mom and our other brothers, like, waiting specifically for that scene to, like, watch everybody freak out and jump out of their skin. <laughs> yep. Basically, well, I would rather watch them than watch the scene. I don't want to see it. It's too scary. Like, I remember dad being like, oh, oh, oh everybody watching? Everybody watching? <laughs> like, he was I also so texted ready. you. I also texted you partway through watching this movie, and I was like, I have no, I did not at all remember this. It's a long sequence, too, where uh, Graham goes over to the house of the guy that caused the car accident. You did not remember him. that part? No, I remembered that part, but he go he goes into the house, and this guy, played by M. Night Shyamalan, has locked one of the aliens in his pantry. Yeah. And I texted you because I was like, I didn't remember at all that entire sequence with the pantry or the hands coming out and... Uh, and wow, <laughs> and that's one of the most the famous... Off scenes from the movie that's what you said i literally texted you and was like did they add this scene i don't remember it and you're like no dude it's like one of the most it's like a plot important scene yeah and it was (laughs) um spoiler alert that's the alien that comes back at the end yeah and the time in the time that that was made that this movie was made that was actually very hard to film too so it was like also kind of like 
known for like the technical prowess that it illustrated. That's not something I was aware of as like a uh, 11 year old. kid. (laughs) Yeah. Like they, uh, what's funny is it's probably something I was aware of as like an eight year old, because even when I was eight, I was like obsessed with, you know, movies and all that. But yeah. Um, yeah. Like, because for them to be able to have the reflection in the knife would have had to been CGI'd in the knife and like done really well to make it not look like total garbage. <laughs> and it looks good. Like that, it holds up. It looks really, it's, it's a creepy scene. Yeah. So Hannah, do you want to explain to people um, or help me explain to people why another piece of this movie that sticks in our, in our family, uh, namely the tinfoil hats that the children and Meryl wear later on so that the aliens can't hear their thoughts. Okay. Actually, I did not remember that until you mentioned it in our group text with our brother, uh, recently. So I, so you're going to have to explain it because I didn't even like, I don't even know if I was aware of it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this, this has, this, this has legs for two reasons. The first one is that this movie scared our mom, like we said, a lot. And a favorite uh, tactic of our moms to get out of the room when something tense is, to ha- is happening is she says she's going to go make tea because the kitchen is open to the living room. So she can still kind of see the screen, but she doesn't have to look at it and she can kind of be doing other stuff. So the first story is just that Uh, A couple of years ago, our mom made a Twitter account and she made a Twitter account specifically to join what I do with Bloody Good Horror, which is called Tweet with BGH, where we watch usually a bad horror movie like once a month and people can tweet along. So mom made a Twitter with the help of Ryan, I believe, specifically for this purpose. And mom's Twitter handle is going to make tea and the picture... Her profile picture is Joaquin Phoenix wearing a tinfoil hat, (laughs) which is just like the best thing. And it makes me laugh so hard. I think Ryan did it. The other story, which Hannah didn't remember, is that uh, in college, Ryan and I went to University of Tampa uh, at the same time. So I only went there freshman and sophomore year and then I transferred. But when Ryan was a freshman, I was a sophomore. So we had one overlap year. We were both at Tampa. And um, Ryan and I, along with a lot of our friends, smoked weed in college. And Ryan's room... Hey, hey, hey. you don't need to put your friends on blast. Their parents could be listening. (laughs) Uh, And Ryan's, Ryan's room had, I think, two tinfoil hats, just like the ones in Signs. And what Ryan would do is if you were hanging out like in our group of friends or with Ryan or whatever, and you got a little bit too high and started to like freak out, Ryan would make you wear the tinfoil hat. (laughs) And we have this, we have this friend, Becca, who's the best. And it was almost always Becca who had to wear the tinfoil hat. (laughs) She would like get freaked out. And Ryan would do this thing where she'd be like, when can I take it off? He'd like in five minutes. And then five minutes later, she'd like, has it been five minutes yet? He's like, no, you got to wait five minutes. And so like she would end up wearing the tinfoil hat the whole night and constantly be like, I swear it has to have been five minutes by now. Um, but it was the best. It was a really fun, it was a really fun trick. So now whenever I, on my two rewatches of signs, I could not, not think of um, the tinfoil hats, the, the tinfoil hats of shame that Ryan and his roommate had in their, in their dorm room <laughs> uh, in, in college. 
I love that. I actually did something very similar to someone once when I first moved to Chicago where um, a friend of my roommate at the time, my best friend Karen, um, they had brought over like, or they had a friend of hers from like childhood was coming to visit. Uh, uh-huh. And then they invited some friends that they had who lived in Chicago. And these kids, like, these guys who came over were, like, wasted before they even got to our apartment that night. Um, uh-huh. And so one of these kids was, like, absolutely out of it. And so I thought it was really funny to <laughs> basically, like, wait a couple minutes and be, like, hey, can you take your shoes off? Like, everybody else has their shoes off, and, like, we kind of prefer, like, no shoes on in the house. And then he'd be like, oh, my God, yeah, sorry. And then he'd take his shoes off. And then i wait about five minutes and be like, hey, man, how come you don't have any shoes on? Like, that's so weird. Everybody else has their shoes on. <laughs> so then he would put his shoes back on, and then I would wait five minutes and be like, hey, man, I- I've asked you already a couple times, like, we don't wear shoes in the house. If you're going to show up at a stranger's house blackout drunk, you you deserve nothing nothing less. Well, and I have to say, like, um, he kind of got his revenge, too, because we were playing werewolf uh, later on with a group of people. And at one point, we went through this round of werewolf where, like, we made it through, like, if anyone is familiar who's listening, like, you get, like, a five-minute deliberation period to figure out like who the werewolves are and we made it through the five minutes and still couldn't figure out what was going on. And then we flipped over everyone's cards and we flipped over everyone's cards. We were like, this still doesn't make any sense. And we were talking for like a good half an hour trying to understand like what had possibly happened to make all these things happen. Uh And eventually someone was like, wait a minute to the super drunk kid. And they were like, what did you start out as? And he was like, Oh, I just, like, mix up everybody's cards. And we were like, what? And he was like, I was making trouble. Oh, my God. So he was the troublemaker, which I know this is only for a very select few group of people who will understand this reference. But he was, like, blackout drunk and thought his job was to just make trouble, which he did. And boy, oh, boy, did we waste a lot of our night. Yep, that's amazing. Um... So, as this movie starts out, we think aliens are showing up. Uh, Mel Gibson's in denial for a long time. Let's talk about the third act, right? So, Mel Gibson is sort of on board now that something weird's happening. He's the last holdout. The kids believe it first, and then Meryl sort of thinks they might be right. And then Mel Gibson is like, okay, I think you're right. Um, After he sees the alien, the hand of the alien in the pantry. So, they decide... I just want to talk briefly about the scene where they decide, you know, they get, he gets home. He tries to get everyone to go to the lake house. They don't want to go to the lake house. He's angry. And then he decides, okay, let's make a big meal and we can make whatever everybody wants to eat. So they cook this huge dinner because clearly Mel Gibson thinks, you know, this might be their last chance to have a nice big meal together because the aliens are here and they mean harm. Um, And, they, the kids ask if they can say grace, which seems like a pretty fair request. They've obviously grown up very religious. It's hard and disorienting for them that dad has sort of given up all of his faith after mom's death. Um, and he gets very angry and is like, no, we're not saying grace. 
And then everyone starts crying. My note is, well, he immediately spoiled that meal. Like, (laughs) it's, again, it is actually a very effective scene, I think, like, and well-written to see sort of how everyone is grappling with this grief in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and it's like that compiled with the fact, too, that, you know, like, this could actually be their last meal together. Right. So it's like their stress level is so high. And the acting in this scene is really good, but it's just like, again, I think especially because the Mel Gibson of it all doesn't age well, um, seeing (laughs) him kind of like freak out and be like, no, we're not going to say grace. I'm going to eat some of everything. And he starts like shoveling food into his mouth while Abigail Breslin is like sobbing. (laughs) Um, And then he starts crying and it's just like, this is a lot. And literally everyone is crying and it's like, you could have just said grace. (laughs) Yeah. It like would have been. And then do they say grace after they hug or what's happening? Like we didn't get to see the end of that. I was curious how that conflict resolved. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and then um, basically everything from then on is, like, high octane. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I wanted to let you sort of, like, lead us into the ending, because that's the part you were excited to talk about. So tell us about some of the stuff that's going on as the movie sort of descends into this nighttime. Well, yeah, like, that part is one of my most favorite parts um, from growing up, is when they can hear them on the roof, uh-huh. and then they can hear them getting into, like, the upstairs into the attic just like that is such an effective scene for me like the kind of like the banging around that they're hearing um I love that and then they all have to like run and get into the basement Mm um I was really bummed that we didn't see it but we did hear the aliens kill the dog coming into the house uh, and I'm just like I'm so over horror movies being like, and the dog died. It's that's like, also the second the dog. dog. That's the second dog to get, die yeah. in that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the part that I remember the most, like the most visceral moment for me of that movie that I kind of was excited for and waiting for was, or is when they're all in the basement and they realize that there's an old mine shaft um, entrance in the basement. And so they're like going to. They it was a coal shoot. Coal right? shoot. Coal shoot. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So they need to find it so that they can barricade it. And as they're all like looking for it, um, the little boy, Rory Culkin, is like, someone flat shines a light on him or something. And he's like, what? And then the thing is right behind him. Yeah, that scene's very effective because everything's only lit by the flashlight, so we can't see most of the basement. Yes, and when the kind of like when the scuffle ensues after that, you also don't really see it. You just see like the lights kind of flashing, things kind of flying, um, and then it's just like darkness, and then eventually we like come to and, um, and that's what sort of incites him having a uh, beginning to have an asthma attack, which is also another thing that's also something about this movie that was very effective when it first came out. And then over time has been overused in horror movies. But like, uh-huh. I, cause I remember seeing this movie and, and not like the whole thing of the little boy having asthma 
was not something that I was like super familiar with as like a trope, sure. you know? And whereas like now it, it's in so many movies. Um, right. But I love, love, love that whole sequence of shining the light on the little boy, realizing the alien is right behind him. And then the scuffle where you can't see anything. And honestly, yeah, because the flashlight gets dropped. So like, the camera follows the flashlight, mm-hmm. which gets dropped on the floor and then kind of kicked. So it's aiming at like a wall. And so we can hear Joaquin Phoenix and Mel Gibson, like trying to free the free Rory Culkin. And the whole time the camera is just the camera and the flashlight are just pointing at Abigail Breslin's legs yeah. in the corner, which I know you haven't seen these movies, but that shot is like, uh, I assume done in homage or just totally unknowing that it's influenced by this, but one of the paranormal activity movies has a shot that's just like this, where like the camera and a flashlight are following and they just like come upon like the lower half of a girl kind of like standing against a wall. And it's a, like a big jump scare. That also makes me think of um, as above. So below has a moment a lot like that too. Yeah. 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 Um, But Yeah. yeah. And I would say for me, like that part of the movie is probably the part that, rings the most true to like the for being scary to me as a kid because like a lot of people who know me well know that I am like famously afraid of the dark and that I've always slept with a nightlight even as an adult um and that I even like accidentally made my college roommate like afraid of the dark because we always had a nightlight in our room and then when she would go home for the summer she'd be too scared to sleep in the dark (laughs) Um, so that sequence when I was a kid was so scary to me because like, that was my greatest fear was just like darkness and not being able to see what was going on. And so like the sounds in just the complete darkness, like, or like the, where you can't really see what's going on was like the most scary thing to me in this movie. Yeah. And that was fun because again, because that scene I'm sure scared me as a kid, but it didn't scare me and stick with me the same way that the video, the birthday videotape did. Like, I didn't really remember much of this. So watching the scene in the basement was like watching it for the first time. I didn't really remember what was going to happen. And I think they use the darkness and the, the sort of hyper-focused light really well. Um, and then we get into the end end of the film where it's daytime uh, the radio seems to be back on. It sounds like the aliens are leaving. Humans must have figured out something that that they are weak that we, that that that's their weakness, and so they've decided they're leaving. They're leaving. The invasion is pulling back. Um, Merrill says Bucks County has been cleared, or like Philadelphia and the surrounding area has been cleared, and it's like I don't know how anyone could possibly know that, but sure. So. <laughs> They leave, especially because the aliens famously are like semi-invisible and or can camouflage themselves. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you were able to clear an entire metro area. but Like that that's quickly fine. and that, uh, and be that sure. <laughs> yeah. But they really need Rory Culkin's, uh, Morgan's asthma medicine. So they leave the basement and they're upstairs and, uh, Mel Gibson goes to get the TV so that they can watch what's on the news and Morgan can watch what's on the news And as he rolls the TV into the room, we see one of the aliens in the reflection of the TV, which I think, like, that shot, I think, was still very cool. Yeah, Um, absolutely. The alien alien holding Morgan's 
unconscious body yeah. uh, very threateningly. Uh, and that scene, like, I remember so well from being a kid because that scared me so, so badly when I was younger. Yeah. Um, I will say that I was bummed. Um, a couple facts about the aliens is that first they were, the aliens were going to be completely invisible. And I wonder if you think that would have been as effective as this. Um, like if you never saw the aliens at all. I mean, I know that's a conversation that we have a lot with creature features is like seeing versus not seeing or like how because sometimes it's like the creature design is disappointing um i don't know because i they are very like tall and menacing and so i i wonder like if that part was missing like if they would be as scary also i agree also i just don't know that this movie had the would have had although it had really good effects for its time like i don't know if they could have pulled that off as well yeah i think you're probably right i think I think what they choose to do where the aliens, their skin changes colors so they can appear semi-invisible yeah. or they can be invisible in certain settings. I think that was very effective. Yeah. Um, where like you see them sometimes and sometimes you don't. I thought that was a perfect way to do it because I think having them be totally invisible wouldn't have been as scary. I agree. But there is something scary about the idea that they could be invisible sometimes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I also read on the IMDb trivia that the aliens were originally going to have female builds, but then they were deemed that that was not threatening enough, (laughs) which I have feelings about because I can be pretty damn threatening. Thank you very much. Yeah, Uh, that's that's funny. Okay, so that also feels to me like a product of its time very much. (laughs) Oh, 100%. It's, It's just weird and funny that in a movie where... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is playing like toxic masculinity personified and he's like girls can't do that the same movie apparently without any kind of self-awareness was like the aliens can't look like girls because girls aren't scary yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah here's my last big thing I wanted to talk about to talk to you about and I want your feedback is like again I think we've established that especially in movies that came after this uh M. Night Shyamalan gets a lot of shit for, like, doing big twists and things like that. And we've talked in the past about if you're going to do something at the end of your movie that feels like a twist, it needs to be something that feels believable. Like, there needs to be enough clues Mm -hmm. that if you watch the movie again, it makes sense. And they shouldn't be so obvious that you can see the twist coming. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you feel this movie throughout, we are getting, like, we are getting story of what happened to Mel Gibson's wife is unraveling slowly in flashbacks. Um, and how did you feel about the way that they ultimately uh, un- reveal everything by like doing the end of the flashback during this very tense climactic scene, including the part where she says these lines that Mel Gibson has already told Joaquin Phoenix, she says, like, mm-hmm. For all the things on this movie that do hold up really well, I'm like, you already did all this work. Like, you need to have faith in your audience. They remember you said these things. I don't want to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, that's hard for me because when I, when I saw it as a kid, I remember that, like, bringing it all together for me. Mm-hmm. But watching it as an adult, it's like, I didn't need that. 
But yeah. I don't know because, like, I can't decide where I land on that since I had it both ways. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like I would have taken the flashback it's just that the main thing I'm talking about for those that haven't seen the movie or don't remember is that earlier on in the film when Meryl's kind of saying, like, I missed having my big brother, like, believe in something and have faith and tell me that things were going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And so Mel Gibson tells this whole story of, or gives this whole speech about how there's two kinds of people. There are people who see something happen and they believe it's a sign of a higher power. And there are people who see something happen and they think it's random chance. And that... Both of those people can have the same experiences and what they take from those experiences depends on the sort of how they orient their understanding of themselves in the greater cosmos. Right. And he says, you know, uh, I don't remember the wife's name, but like her last words were see and tell Meryl to swing away. Yeah. He's like, you know why she said that? Because her brain was firing off. Like it didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, what, we learned that she said those things because Mel Gibson needed to see the alien and then Meryl needed to attack the alien with a baseball bat. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if we had gotten that whole flashback and we just didn't get her saying it again, that would have worked better for me. It was like, remember how we told you she said this? It was like, I know that she said it. Yeah. That's the part where I was like, okay, I, I didn't need us to go that far. Personally, I wanted I wanted the movie to give me a little bit more credit to remember things, but but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I think that's maybe something. Although I don't know, actually, it's a good question. I was gonna say that's maybe something that you wouldn't need now, but maybe needed when this movie came out. But then, as I say that, I'm like. I've never seen The Sixth Sense in its entirety. <laughs> oh my gosh, that movie is great. And I but I know that at the end you get like the flashback to show you everything that actually happened. Yeah. Is it the same as like with this? Do you I think I haven't or... seen The Sixth Sense in a long time, but I feel like if I were to watch it now, I would feel like yeah, I don't need because what those scenes feel like to me is the director being a, reminding you about something that they think you might have forgotten. Yeah. And B, C, I laid the groundwork earlier. And it's like, have more faith in me and yourself that I don't need you to be like, how does it feel to have your mind blown? Like, yeah. It's a very Chris Angel mind freak thing to do <laughs> in a movie. Yeah, which I I also feel like is, again, possibly a aspect of this that's like a product of its time. But I do feel you on that. Um, although also talking about this is like, do we have to do an episode on The Sixth Sense now? <laughs> I mean, I would be so down. I really like this. Because I know you love that movie, but you know, it's also ghosts, which is why I haven't ever watched it. I think you could, ha- I mean, it is effective and, and startling, but I think you could handle I it. I remember you watched it for a birthday party of yours once where I remember being like forcing myself to fall asleep like putting my head under a blanket and forcing myself to fall asleep because I was like I cannot do this (laughs) I remember um but also being at an age where I was like I also cannot give up the opportunity to spend time with my sister and her cool teenage friends yeah yeah (laughs) 
right before I went to college, I remember watching this with a friend. I remember watching Sixth Sense with a friend who had never seen it. Um, and I was, and, and didn't know anything about it. Like didn't know the twist, which I feel like is pretty hard at this point. Um, but this person somehow did not know the twist at the end of the movie. And it just so happened that the same night we were going to watch Sixth Sense, I played this person, the the music video for, uh, jizzed in my pants, which was, had just come out at the time. <laughs> Spoiled the end of the success. <laughs> no way. Oh my God. You're right. Oh my God. Yeah. So I was like, I can't believe I did this literally right before I was going to show you that. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, wow. And that's like when you have like a, that's a golden opportunity. It's like when my freshman year roommate um, for college, who I actually lived with for two and a half years, when I found out she not only had never seen Fight Club, but didn't know anything about it. Oh, man. It's such a treat to find people like that. I know. It's like you get to experience this for the first time in a way that almost nobody gets anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, that's amazing. Exactly. Now, Hannah, one of the pieces of IMDb trivia I read, and I can tell you didn't read the IMDb trivia for this movie because I think you would have brought this up by now, is that a different actor was originally slotted to play Mel Mel Gibson's role. Okay. And I... I I hesitate because I feel like once I tell you this, we're both going to be devastated at the world that we could have had. Was it Will Smith? It was Mark Ruffalo. Oh! <laughs> Can you imagine Mark Ruffalo as the, like, priest struggling with his faith? Also, he's much closer in age to Joaquin Phoenix, which is probably why Joaquin Phoenix is so much younger. Mm-hmm. Because they had originally cast Mark Ruffalo, and then it was when he had his brain tumor, and so he wasn't able to do the movie. Mark Ruffalo had a brain tumor? Yes, he tells this. Yes, he did. Um, He found out when his wife was pregnant with their first child, and at first he didn't know if he was going to live, and he tells this really beautiful story about, I think for a while after they removed the tumor, it was either that he... It messed with one of his senses. I forget if it was his vision or his speech. Mm. I think it was his vision. I don't recall. He tells this really street, sweet story. I'll find it. I think it was on Colbert's show um, about, like, one day getting ready in the morning and realizing that whatever – it was either that he went blind partially or he couldn't speak properly. I don't remember. Something happened. And, like, once he realizes that it's better – and he's like telling the story and the first thing you want to do is tell his wife and he's like, like telling the story and he's yelling like, baby, baby, it's better. It's like, oh my God, it's like the sweetest thing ever. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's a shame that the part of this movie that ages the worst is Mel Gibson and it could have been Mark Ruffalo. Like that is, that would have just made the movie better and better with time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Although, and I feel really bad saying this after all that. Oh my God, Hannah, if you say something bad about Mark Ruffalo, I'm going to be so devastated. I just don't really like Mark Ruffalo that much. What? Who are you? I don't think he's a very good actor. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Oh my God. I'm very happy for him that he... You know, like, that he had that journey, and I'm, like, grateful that he lived through all that. I just don't think he's a very good actor. You don't like climate justice, social justice warrior, allegedly great husband, 
What? Seems like a really nice guy. Why do you say allegedly a great husband? Well, I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but all the stories I've heard sounds like he's a great husband. But and saying a- it allegedly makes it sound like he's going to come <laughs> like, for I don't you. Believe it. Or, yeah, or like you're going to get in trouble for suggesting he's a good husband. He seems to be a good husband, a great dad. He's a He's a real daddy. He's a very attractive man. Wow, Hannah, I'm learning a lot about you today, and I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> You're not going to always that I like, and you don't like Mark Ruffalo. I feel like that always happens on this podcast. You just learn more things about me that make you not sure how you feel about me. <laughs> the more I learn, the less I like, okay? <laughs> um, okay. So, Hannah, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about signs before we get into our in later news? Um, no, I mean, I feel like we really, we really went there. Yeah, I mean, that episode, honestly, was every bit as fun as I anticipated. Yeah, and I'm, like, not sure how I can come back from that um, admission. Honestly, maybe just, like, sit quietly until it's time for you to say where people can find you on the internet. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, So, for our in Ladyer news, Hannah, I know that you and I have both watched the HBO docuseries Dylan v. Farrow. Um, And in the very end of that docuseries, they mentioned that Dylan... Uh, I'm sorry, not Dylan V. Farrow. That's her name. <laughs> Alan V. Farrow. Yeah. Um, at the very end, they have a note that Dylan Farrow is an author and recently published her first young adult novel. And so I immediately got her book from the library because I enjoy a young, a young adult uh, not fiction novel every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to shout out her book as our In Lady News this week. So her book is called Hush. And the premise essentially is that, uh, here it says, in the land of Montaigne, language is literal magic to the select few who possess the gift of telling. This power is reserved for the bards, a group that has almost always been men. So this like takes place in a world where language, both spoken and the written word, have literal magic power and people aren't allowed to have books or writing implements and there's certain words you're not allowed to say. Um, I found it to be a really compelling book and I just wanted to read, this is only about a page. I wanted to read the note from the author that she wrote for the end of the book. So she says, when I was growing up, the world of books was a refuge for me as my family was assaulted by a powerful individual dedicated to ruining our lives and our credibility using the overwhelming power of a verbal campaign that was supported only by obfuscating legal documentation An entire generation was led to believe in a false narrative. Today, this type of situation has become very visible to the public at last. And yet, we still live in a world fragmented by the easy, almost addictive spread of news, both real and false. A world that breeds skepticism toward victims and gives a platform and power to those who spread lies, hate, and fear. Sometimes it requires incredible bravery and risk on the part of an individual to stand up and expose the truth to persevere in a sea of doubt. This is a story about the importance of holding fast to one's own voice and sense of justice in a climate where it's easy, normal even, to be gaslit and deceived, not just by a single predator or even a loved one, but by entire institutions, even the ones we have entrusted to keep us safe. Hush is about that bravery and that risk. It's about the need for something concrete to hold onto in a time of illusions, distortion, and loss. It is a story about the power of words and truth. As writers, it's our job to weave the stories of our imagination into being, 
much like the bards of Montaigne. But our stories are not only the reflections of the author's hopes, fears, and obstacles. To many, they are a reminder of their own. My hope is that this story is one that will continue to make more space for others' truth to come to light. Thank you for reading, for believing, for persisting. Sincerely, Dylan Farrow. Wow. yeah, I have found this book to be like a great, if you enjoy young adult fiction, it's just like a great, um, she builds a really interesting world. And it's clear reading the book, like sort of the message that she wants to put forth to people. And I've just found it really, really amazing and powerful for someone who went through all that she went through, especially at a young age in such a massive and public way mm-hmm. um, to really re reclaim her strength and her story. So I just wanted to highlight both the docu-series and her book. Um, I think she is incredible. And for, for anyone out there um, who's a survivor, like I hope that I appreciate the idea that stories like hers, they're not just about you getting your story out. It's about making space for others that haven't been able to do that. So that's lovely. Yeah, so that's my in lady news for this week, Hannah. I love that. Um, I would also add, and not this is not lady-related necessarily, although I'm sure some ladies work on the show, um, but because we were talking about HBO, if people haven't watched um, that damn Michael Che on HBO Max, you should totally watch it because it's so good. Oh, I have not watched it, but I will. It is so good. <laughs> that sounds great. I will definitely check that out. Um, Okay, Hannah, so now do you have anywhere on the internet that people can find you? Anything you want to share with people? Um, well, I just made some new shirts. I'm not sure when exactly this will be coming out, but I have some new summer styles coming out. So check us out at bettershirts.org or our Instagram is bettershirtschicago. Um, and you can kind of see what I'm working on my and see some of my process on there as well, if that interests you. Um, but yeah, definitely check out my shirts. Sounds good. And you can find me. I write horror movie reviews over at bloodygoodhorror.com. I'm on Twitter as Phillies femme and I'm on Instagram with the same handle. If you are interested in following the show, we are at 28 days, lady underscore ER on Twitter or you can send us an email, and that's 28dayslatier at gmail.com. All right, Hannah, I know that there's always some words of wisdom that you like to send our uh, guests off with. So uh, what do you want to tell our, our folks this week? Um, watch that damn Michael Che, and always pee after sex. Clink! <laughs> Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.